Well, happy, happy Father's Day. Um, today is a joyous day for, for many of us here this morning. Uh, we've had breakfast in bed, haven't we, dads? And uh, we've got another tie that we've added to the collection. And uh, perhaps uh, this afternoon after church, you might be connecting with family and having lunch or, or, or dinner together with, um, with those that you love. But um, for others, however, today is kind of tinged with uh, a little bit of perhaps a little bit of, uh, of sadness. Perhaps, um, perhaps you don't know who your, who your dad is or perhaps um, uh, you've lost your dad and, and you had a really close relationship with with that 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 man, and um, or you're separated like I am today from from my dad, who's up in uh, New South Wales, and so there's not that level of closeness. And one of our kids is flying out to New Zealand today, so kind of uh, going to miss him. And um, or perhaps you've experienced some relationship breakdown. And so if you're one of those folks in that latter category where um, today is a struggle, we just want to let you know that that our thoughts and our prayers are with you. Okay, so as we're talking about Father's Day today, just touch, trust that God would touch you and just um, ease uh, some of the pain that might be associated with, um, with this day. So as, as has already been indicated, and I don't know why, but um, one of the great things about being a dad is you get to tell dad jokes, especially on Father's Day. And um, did you hear about the man who invented Lifesaver lollies? No, he's worth a mint. Oh, they get better. You know, I get so fed up with, uh, with Louise accusing me of having no sense of direction. I pack my bags and write. I knew you wouldn't get that one. And you know what? I don't know why they call chips French fries when they are cooked in grease. I just don't get that one. All right, I promise. No more. I've got them out of my system for the day. They're, they're, they're so good. Don't tempt me, darling. Don't tempt me. All right. Well, the Bible assigns uh, many names and titles and, uh, and metaphors to God, for, uh, to God but undoubtedly um, the most um, profound name, title, or metaphor that um, the Bible gives to God is, is the name, the title, the metaphor of Father. 1 John 3 1 says, See, how very much our Father loves us. Our Father loves us. Matthew 6, 9, which for me is one of the most um, important verses in the Bible, where Jesus is teaching uh, his disciples how to engage and connect with God. And he starts his lesson on prayer with these words. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven. Despite what we might have missed out here on earth, there is some good news, and that good news is that we have a Father in heaven. In heaven. We have a heavenly Dad that loves us deep, deeply and passionately. In Galatians 4, verse 6, it says, Because we are God's children, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Now, Abba is not just uh, the name of a Swedish uh, supergroup who had a hit with uh, Take a Chance on Me. 
And uh, our daughter here, Chloe, has got a fantastic version. If you want to go on YouTube and have it, she's really embarrassed. But she has done a, a version of um, Take a Chance, the Abba song, and it is so good. In fact, it is so good that somebody else has actually started up a, I don't know what it is, and, and another, she doesn't want to talk about it. Anyway. So the word, this word Abba is, is not just the name of a, of a, of a, of a pop group. It's an Aramaic word, um, which means daddy or papa. And actually, literally, the Aramaic word is, literally means my father, my daddy, my papa, my, my, my father, our father, our daddy, our papa. And so this term, there is something deeply um, relational and familial um, in, in the kind of relationship that God wants to build with us, his children. And so God is first and foremost, before any other name or title or metaphor that we want to apply to God, the, the number one uh, tag that we need to associate with God is the name Father. Daddy, Papa. J.I. Packer, who's read his wonderful book, Knowing God? I think it's kind of a rite of passage, almost, uh, at least for my, uh, my age group, it was the go-to book when you became a Christian. And J.I. Packer is a well-known theologian and author, and he writes, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctly Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. It's a pretty powerful, powerful statement. Now, I want to just clarify that when, when I, at least when I talk uh, of God as Father, we are not saying that God is male. Um, there are many, many uh, feminine names and titles and, and metaphors throughout the Bible for God. Um, one of the first uh, ones to emerge uh, was given by our good friend Abraham, who we spent some time looking at. And one of the names that, God, that Abraham um, identified uh, God with is the name, you can remember, El Shaddai. Now, the name El Shaddai literally means, and not being, um, I'm just, this is what the Bible is all about. The word El Shaddai, the name El Shaddai means many-breasted one. Many-breasted one. In other words, God is someone who is maternal, who wants to nurture us and sustain us and feed us. And so God transcends gender. God transcends gender. But the Bible just needs to use um, names and images as descriptors that are helpful for us as human beings to try and grasp something of the mystery of the divine. Do we get that? 
So I don't want anybody here this morning saying, oh, you're, you're, you're pushing one thing or the other. I'm not pushing either. God transcends, transcends gender. Just that the Bible has to use terms that we can identify with to try to grasp what God is like. So when it comes to those of us who are parents, God wants us to model our parenting on, on God's. Now, um, being a grandparent for me is the best thing in the world. I was talking to a friend the other day and I said, my great disappointment in my life at the moment is I, I can't retire yet. I don't have enough money. And I would just, my dream would be to be able to work part-time, to do some study and look after my grandkids. It's the best, it is the best thing in the entire world. The hardest job, however, in the world is being a parent. And all the parents said, it's tough being a parent. Parenting begins with something called labor. Doesn't it, ladies? It begins with labor and, and, and it just gets harder from then on. Um, and the pressure, particularly on parents today, is immense. And parents need all the support that they can get, don't, don't you? If you're a parent, you need all the support you can get. There's a proverb, Proverbs 24 verse 3 says, It takes wisdom to have a good family, and it takes understanding to make it strong. And the big question is, where do we get that wisdom from? Where does that wisdom from, come from that is going to enable us to shape and form good families? Well, one of the the key ways that we learn to become good parents so that we build um, good uh, families is by observing and knowing God as a parent. Now, you might be here this morning and say, well, well I'm not a parent, therefore I'm not going to listen to anything else that's going to be said this morning. Or, or my kids have, have grown up and therefore this message is no longer relevant for me. Can I just encourage you that these principles are actually relevant for all of us? Whether we're a parent or not, or whether our kids have grown up and flown the coop and they're no longer around. Um, these principles are still valid and valuable for us. And I trust, as I was reading some stats um, uh, yesterday, that those folks that have children in their lives have better health and well-being outcomes. You're, a, you're better off, if you, even if you're older, surround yourself with young people because what it does, it produces really good health and well-being. I'm falling over here and, I, and I'm just drinking water, I promise you. Okay. So hopefully this message is going to have some relevance to all of us. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at getting to know God as a parent in in uh, four ways, which are going to help us improve our parenting skills and our, and our life skills in general. So what kind of parent is God? Well, number one, God is a parent who loves extravagantly. See, God doesn't just have love. God is love. The very substance of God is love. If you were to be able to cut God, God would bleed Love. Um, there is 
conditional love and there is unconditional love. And the extravagant love of God is an unconditional form of love. See, conditional love um, says, I will love you, but only if. I will love you, but only if. Conditional love is love with strings attached. There are conditions. That's why it's called conditional love. There are conditions attached to you being a recipient of that love. Whereas unconditional love is an extravagant love. It's a love with no conditions, no strings attached. It's a love that is not based on a person's performance. It's, it's being loved regardless of who you are or what it is that you do. Now, I just uh, read something recently about a man in China who um, divorced his wife because she produced ugly children. <laughs> now, what this man didn't know is before he got married, she had had plastic surgery before he got married. He didn't know that. So when um, she started to pop out the kids, um, they didn't measure up to his ideal of what a good-looking uh, child should be like. So he divorced his wife because he figured that she must be responsible for breeding these uh, ugly offspring due to the fact that she had deceived him by having plastic surgery and didn't inform him about it before they got married. Now, was that man's love towards his wife and his children conditional or unconditional. It was conditional. That's an example of condition. There's love, but there are strings attached. There are conditions. I will love you, but only if you produce good-looking kids. The father in the story. I'm feeling naughty, but I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay on track. It's Father's Day, yeah, I can get away with it today, can't I? I don't think so, no, I won't. Yeah. So in Luke chapter 15, we, we, there is the well-known story of uh, uh, the, the, the prodigal son, um, which is really about the story of the, the extravagant love of a father. And if you're familiar with that story, you know, the, the, the story is this uh, man has two sons and one of the youngest son um, says to his dad, give me my portion of the inheritance. So he takes his dad's money, he goes off to a faraway country, squanders his dad's wealth, um, uh, ends up in a pig pen and decides after a while, well, I'm going to make my way back home, I'm going to go apologize to dad and hopefully he will have me back on the family farm and I can work as a, as a hired, uh, hired labourer. And in that story, when, when, when the young boy comes back home, it tells us that the father is uh, looking for him. And you think of all of the things that the father could have said to his son. He could have said, hey man, what have you done with all of my money? Or he could have said, look at you. What an absolute mess you've become. You've ruined your life. You've ruined my reputation. What's wrong with you? Or he could have said to him, you stink. But in the story in Luke 15, Jesus paints a completely different picture of a completely different kind of father. The father in the story runs towards his son, something that Jewish men just did not do. 
In that culture of the day, uh, Jewish men didn't run. It was unbecoming of a Jewish man to run. Okay, And yet he runs and he embraces the son. The fact that he's... Uh, son stunk and had been with pigs didn't matter to him. And what he did was he threw a party in celebration of this boy's safe return. And I'm sure that they would have unpacked stuff, you know, after the fatted calf had been killed and they'd had some celebration. But what mattered most at that time was the welfare of his He wanted his son to know that he loved him extravagantly and unconditionally. In his uh, book, um, Capital of the World, which I'm sure we've all read by Ernest Hemingway, he tells the story of a Spanish father and his rebellious teenage son, Paco. And uh, Paco ran away from home, and the father set off to find him. And he searched for months and months and months uh, to no avail. Finally, in uh, one last desperate attempt... Um, to reconnect with, with his son, he, he his distort, distraught dad put an ad in uh, the uh, a newspaper in Madrid. And this is what the ad read. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. Well, on Saturday at noon... Outside of that Madrid newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up looking for forgiveness and love from their father. And I think this is something of what God feels towards you and I. You see, God has put an ad in this book called the Bible. And that ad is this, mate, all is forgiven. You are loved, signed, your father. All is forgiven. It's all forgotten. It's all, it's all been dealt with. I love you, signed, your father. And in Romans 5 verse 8, it says, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not wait until we got our act together before he showed or proved or demonstrated his love towards us. God took the initiative and moved toward us. He ran towards us while we were still in a mess. The second um, bit of uh, advice to you as a parent is make the extravagant love of God the foundation of your life. You see, when, when this sits at the heart of who we are, this a knowledge that we are the recipients of God's extravagant love, um, it enables us, because let me tell you, I know you think your kids are good, and that you've raised them well, and you have, but the chances are they're going to mess up. If they haven't already... They will behave in ways that you're not in agreement with. That's just reality for at least my experience with one of my kids anyway. <laughs> they're going to come home one night and they're going to spit. You'll, you'll smell and you go, that smells like pig to me or something else. It smells like something else. 
And everything within you is going to say, what have you done with my money? What a, what a mess you've made of your life. What on earth are you thinking of? But in those moments when we're grounded and founded on the fact that we have received this crazy, extravagant, unconditional love of God for ourselves, that will then position us to be able to love our kids in those moments when they most need to be loved when they've messed up. Amen? So the next thing we need to know about God as a parent, if we want to become better parents ourselves, is God is a parent who lavishes uh, blessing. The word bless simply means to speak well of, to speak well of. In Matthew 3, um, it says that then John baptized Jesus. And as Jesus rose up out of the water, the heavenly realm opened up over him. And he saw the Holy Spirit descend out of heavens and rest upon him in the form of a, of a dove. Then suddenly, in the suddenly the voice of the Father shouted from the sky, saying, This is my son. This is my boy. This is the one I love. This is the one who I take great delight in. You see, at this point in time, Jesus hadn't begun his ministry. He hadn't healed anyone. He hadn't cast out any demons yet. He hadn't preached a sermon. But God lavishes and proclaims blessing over him and affirms Jesus before he has done anything. He goes, this is my boy and I am so incredibly proud of him. Now, one of the ways in which we as parents bless and delight in our kids is that we have got to learn to help them discover, embrace their uniqueness. Now, we've got three kids, and all of them are very unique and, and different to one another, completely different to one another. Um, in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 6, it says, God works through different people in different ways. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're different. You're different. We're, we're different. And... The problem is, um, as parents, um, we, we sometimes uh, want to hold back some of the uniqueness that our kids have because um, we want to compare them. We want them to, we, we measure our kids up against others, you know. Um, so uh, some kids are more academic than others, and that's okay. Some kids are more athletic than others. That's okay. Some kids are more arty and creative than others, and that's okay. The problem is, if we, want, if we think that our kids should be academic, but they're not wired that way, we're not blessing them. Or if, we've got a, if we really value sport, and our kids are not athletic, and we start putting pressure on them to be something that they're not, because they're actually artistic, and they're creative, and they're... You know, airy fairy, and they're off with their imagination and want to write poems, but we want them to be all sporty. We're not blessing them because we're not empowering them to be who God has designed them to be. And then the other way that we can hinder our kids and not bless them is by wanting them to conform. So one is we compare them with others. And the other thing is we want, to com com want them to conform. You see, there's something innate within us. We just want our kids to be like... We don't want our kids to stand out too much. We 
don't want them to be too uh, different. Um, we just want them to blend in. Because we generally don't handle difference very well ourselves. And so, look guys, just give our kids room to breathe. huh? Um, celebrate and affirm who they are and their passions and their strengths and their loves and what, whatever those things might be. Amen? Number three, God is a parent who educates well. So in the Garden of Eden, um, right at the very beginning, um, God clearly creates clearly defined parameters um, for his children, Adam and Eve. And he outlines the consequences to them if they rem- if they step outside of those, of those boundaries. And so God taught them. He educated them. He provided them with, with a clear and transparent understanding of what he wanted, what was needed, and also how they would respond and what the results would be if they didn't respond. So when God educates, God educates well. I've, I've, I've used this before, but it's so, so incredibly helpful. There's a child psychologist by the name of Gary, Gary Etso. He describes the four um, stages of parenting. There are actually age-appropriate ways in which uh, we are to train and educate our kids. The so stage one is the discipline stage, but from birth to age five. So in stage one, parents set the rules and establish guidelines and boundaries. They define uh, right and wrong, good and bad. And the problem is if parents don't set the boundaries at stage one, in the formative years of a child's development, it becomes incredibly difficult for those kids to live disciplined lives as adults. So it's real, that's where the hard work is, isn't it? You know, parents of toddlers, my gosh. Then stage two is the training uh, stage, ages six to 12. Now, this is where you're training, you're showing kids how to do things. So kids don't learn it during this this phase uh, by being told how to do things. They learn by observation. So in the training phase, parents are role models and their children are sponges who learn by what they see. Isn't it scary when you see your kids? saying or do something, that's kind of a mirror image of what you do. You do. Um, stage three is the, coach, is the coaching phase. So this is between 13 and 19. And so during this phase, um, adolescents are now kind of playing the game of life for themselves. And as a parent, you kind of feel redundant. You're on the sidelines now. Uh, you've done, you know, hopefully the discipline and the training, and now you're a coach and you stand on the sidelines and you get to shout instructions um, kind of uh, uh, to, to the kids who are out there living life. And the problem is during this phase, and this is where it gets really scary, is um, kids um, may or might, might not listen to their parents' coaching. And then stage four, which is um, friendship, and this is the age 20 and beyond, See, friendship is the final stage of parenting and it begins to occur sometime around the age of 20. And the goal of all parenting, so those of you who got kids who are younger, your goal right now should be to reach stage four where your children are your good friends. I get a little bit uncomfortable when kids who are sort of early teens and their parents are their best friends, so you kind of, I, I, don't, I don't feel kind of comfortable with that. But once they're in adult, adulthood, there should be this goal of 
um, parenting our kids to, uh, to become our good friends so that we get to do life together with them. And we still might get to coach every now and again, but that coaching is based on two things. It's based on respect and it's based on request. Otherwise, we'll be deemed to be interfering. And if you have a look and analyse Jesus' relationship with the disciples, it pretty well follows this model. He disciplined, he trained, he coached, and then ended up with friendship. And then finally, uh, God is a parent who corrects without condemning. Proverbs 3.12 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves just like a father corrects the child that he delights in. So God's correction for us is actually a sign of his love. Um, if you're never feeling or experiencing the adjustment of God, not good. Not good. So if you're a Christian and you're not feeling every now and again, occasionally, kind of the correction, the adjustment of God, that is, that's either a sign that you're perfect or that you need to learn to tune in a little bit more to God because God loves us too much to leave us just as we are, doesn't he? So there are usually two, paradig or two paradigms for bringing correction. And parents tend to operate out of one of these two paradigms. And so we bring correction out, either out of, a, out of a paradigm of punishment. So that is, we're, I'm going to punish you, I'm going to correct you as a penalty for the wrongs that you've done, your past wrongs. And so it's, a, it's punitive. Whereas the other uh, paradigm, which is the godly paradigm, is discipline. It's actually correcting for the future. It's about trying to guide and set, uh, steer kids into the place where they can become the best me they can possibly be. And so we are to discipline and not to punish. And we discipline by not correcting in anger and choosing our words carefully. In Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4, it says, Fathers, don't keep on scolding and nagging your children, making them angry and resentful. Instead, bring, bring them up with the loving discipline that God approves with suggestions and godly advice. That's some pretty sound wisdom. Chloe, do you want to make your way up? And... If you're here this morning, I just want to remind you that um, God has put an ad in this book called The Bible. And that ad reads, All is forgiven. I love you. Signed, your father. All is forgiven. If you're here this morning and you're, you're not a Christian, I've got good news to tell you that God has made it pretty clear in this book called the Bible, you are forgiven. And God's love for you is unconditional. There are no strings attached. That God has demonstrated his love for you in this, that while you're still going about doing your own thing, Christ died for you. And so God is not waiting for you to get your act together. You are right now loved, crazily 
extraordinarily, extravagantly, and unconditionally. Amen.